We're reading from John 14 and Revelation 21, the same two passages that we, that we looked at last week. John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. And He shall wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things had passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Dear Father, give us ears to hear and understand what You have promised to Your beloved Son's bride. We ask this in His precious name. Amen. The newlyweds had just returned from a glorious honeymoon and were standing on the porch of a beautiful house. The groom unlocked the door, turned the knob, and gently pushed the door open. He looked into the eyes of his beloved bride who was grinning from ear to ear with tears of joy streaming down her cheeks. And then he took her up into his arms and he carried her across the threshold. He came a few steps into the foyer of this beautiful house and then he carefully set his bride on her her feet and he gave her a tender kiss. And then he spoke these wonderful words. He said, My darling, I hope you really enjoy the house, but it's getting late and my cat's probably running out of food, so I need to get back to my place. I'll try to stop by tomorrow after work if I have time. Now doesn't the end of that story just make your heart sing? Of course it doesn't. And we all know why it doesn't. It's because the house without the person is just another house. When Deb and I were much younger, I used to clean swimming pools in the backyards of some of the most ostentatious and beautiful mansions in North Dallas. Some of them were worth 10 and 20 million dollars, at least one of my clients' estates was worth twice that. More than one of, or two of, of those houses, those estates, were populated by exceedingly unhappy people. I can still vividly remember sitting on the patio of a three-story mansion counseling and consoling and praying for a dear believer while her children went back and forth to their freshly cleaned 35,000-gallon swimming pool. Her husband by that time was living elsewhere with a woman that he had determined to be much more worthy of his love than his wife of nearly 20 years. I lost that dear lady as a client soon afterward because, of course, the first thing to get liquidated once the divorce proceedings were finished was the house so that the proceeds could be divided between the two of them. 
But while that house was still theirs, at least on paper, there was no question that that dear sister and her husband could have covered the mortgage payments on a house like mine for a fraction of what they were spending on utilities every month. There was very little joy in that house. As the end of that same long workday approached after my interaction with that dear lady, I thought of how very fondly I anticipated walking through the doorway of my modest house, knowing that my beautiful wife's loving smile and loving embrace were waiting for me there. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you don't know me very well. I was wealthy then and I'm wealthy now because after 30 years of marriage, I still longed for my bride's companionship every time that I'm away from her. I can take or leave the house. And that would apply even if it was that three-story mansion with the huge pool in the backyard. See, to Debbie and me, the whole point of the place is the presence of that other beloved person. And that's the point of the place that Jesus went to prepare for His beloved bride. Last Sunday, we looked at some of what the Bible says about that amazing place that Jesus is going to bring down with Him from heaven to earth when He comes again. The place the book of Revelation calls the New Jerusalem. I want to start this morning by considering what the Bible says will and will not be in that place. Because what it says about both helps us a great deal to understand what the point of the place is. The first category of things that will not be there is whatever does not belong in the presence of our holy God. Revelation 21.7 says, nothing unclean shall ever come into it. In the Old Testament, the word unclean applied to everything that was common as opposed to holy. That is, everything that was not set apart to God and thus not fitting for His presence. And the essence of that which rendered men unclean was simply sin. And along with sin all the manifestations of the curse of sin rendered man unclean and rendered many of the things that man encountered every day of his life unclean. Revelation 22.3 says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. The first part of that verse is very critically connected to the second part. Ever since the sin of Adam, all of God's creation has been under the curse. But 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The one place to which the darkness of sin and of the curse cannot extend is the dwelling place of God. As I mentioned last week, The tabernacle and later the temple served as powerful, tangible reminders of that principle. So when God comes to dwell together with redeemed people in the place He has prepared for those who love Him, neither sin nor the curse that sin brought upon man and creation will have any place in that place. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point because that's pretty elementary to most of us in this room. But let me take just a moment to point out a bit of how God's Word kind of fleshes that out. How it explicitly addresses that fact. In specific, God declares that none of the following will be there. And this is just a partial list. Death, mourning, crying, pain, violence, destruction, devastation. And you can add to that the symptoms of death and of the curse that were excluded from the earthly tabernacle and temple. Illness, lameness, mold, mildew, disorder. It's not just sin and its consequences that will not be there. There won't be any sinners there. Revelation 21.7 says, 
finish out the verse that I that I uh, truncated a minute ago. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, those two statements are absolute. They don't say, by the way, nobody who sins a lot will be in God's city. They say nobody who sins will be in God's city. What's amazing to me about Revelation 21-27 is the unintuitive transition between the first half of the verse and the second half. It doesn't say in the second half, only those who have stopped practicing abomination and lying will get to be there. It says only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. And that's very, very important because those whose eternal destiny depends on their own victory over sin, on their own goodness, will all end up in the lake of fire. Just read the end of chapter 20. The only people in that glorious city redeemed by God will be people redeemed by God. People whose sin has been utterly put away from them forever because they have trusted in Jesus Christ as the one and only sufficient sacrifice for the debt that they owed to God, that we owed to God. And who will those people be? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And how does a name get written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 both say that the names that are written there were put there before the foundations of the world. So that tells me they're written there by God's doing, not by ours, because we didn't exist when our names were written. How many people will be excluded from God's city and from His kingdom? Our Lord's answer is most people will be excluded. Jesus said the way is narrow and few are those who enter by it. Where will all those unredeemed sinners be in eternity? I've already answered that, but Revelation 21 says it again. Revelation 21.8 But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God doesn't equivocate about this. He's not at all ambiguous. There will be no sin, no sinners, and no curse in God's glorious city because those things do not belong in the presence of our holy God. But very interestingly, there will also be some major upgrades to the old Eden in the New Jerusalem. There are a few things specifically mentioned in Isaiah 60 and in Revelation 21 and 22 that were part of Eden before sin and the curse entered the picture, but that explicitly will not be in the New Jerusalem. And there's some things in the New Jerusalem that were not in Eden. Revelation 21.1 says that there will be no sea, no oceans. And many commentators point out that throughout both Testaments, the waters of the seas and the oceans represent turmoil, disorder, and a threat to man's well-being. Both Paul and Jonah learned what it was like to be tossed into a storm-driven sea far from land. But it seems to me that trying to pin down the reasons that, uh, that God eliminates the seas from His redeemed creation is a little bit futile because He doesn't come right out and say why He has eliminated them. Instead, I think what we should be looking at is what He says about waters in the new creation. Revelation 21, 6 and 7. He said to me, It is done. 
Jesus speaking to John the Apostle, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. There's a connection in that verse between the water of life and relationship with Christ. That's because it's a connection between everything in the new heavens and the new earth and relationship with Christ. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. He showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal. Coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And he says that that river fed, it provided nourishment and water for the tree of life that bears all kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. See, the water that will sustain all life in the New Jerusalem will come directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There will also be no night, no darkness. Revelation 21.25 says there will be light there all the time. Yet there was Night in Eden, it was darkness in God's original creation before the fall. Again, I can't find anything in Scripture that clearly declares the reason for this difference between Eden and the New Jerusalem, but there are some clues. And there's one passage that really gets my attention on this point. See, we know that the New Jerusalem will be the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. What is God's perception of darkness? Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from Thy Spirit or where can I flee from Thy presence? And then at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to Thee and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. To the one who dwells in unapproachable light, darkness has no meaning. And apparently when we finally put on immortality and we see Him as He truly is, darkness will have no meaning to us either. There will be no place for it in His place. God spoke the light into being as the very first act of creation on the very first day of creation, He said, let there be light. And there was. And it was good. And on the fourth day, God created the luminaries, the created sources of light. And He placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. God made those lights, according to His own declaration, to make all of His wonderful works visible to men. It was by them that Adam and Eve saw every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food in the garden that God had made for them. The created light was designed and intended by God to draw men's attention to Him. Even as men beheld all the beauty of all that He had made. But mankind missed the very purpose of the light. Genesis 3 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Suddenly, The light that had revealed only the goodness of God exposed the newfound evil in men. They were naked and they were ashamed and filled with the terrifying fear of God. And they thought they could hide from the source of light. Man rejected the very purpose of light. Instead of loving the God who is the source both of the beautiful things and of the light by which those things are made visible, Instead of loving Him, they loved the things themselves. 
There will be no such confusion in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. The only light there will be the true light. Every time we turn to see the source of light in that glorious place, we will behold only God. There's one more thing that explicitly won't be in the New Jerusalem. It wasn't in Eden either. But what makes it different than the other things that were made after the fall is that this thing, like the Bible, in its original God-approved version, came straight from the mind of God instead of from the minds of men. And this thing that I'm talking about is the created temple. If you want to know where it came from, read Exodus 29, verses 8 and 9. God said to Moses, make this temple according to the design that I show you. And then He enabled the men who made it. His Spirit empowered them so that what came out was from Him, not from them. The same is true of the Bible. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no created temple. Revelation 21.22 says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That is a powerful statement. I'm going to, I'm going to tack a little bit on to, to that in just a moment. We've seen a few things that won't be in the New Jerusalem. And in the process of doing so, we've of course identified a few things that will be in the New Jerusalem. But I want to look again at those things that will be there just to make sure we get the point. In John 14.6, Jesus said to His disciples when He told them He was going and, he was, and where He was going, they couldn't go. But He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And when Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, Lord. We don't know what that place is. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. In the book of Exodus, when God gave precise instructions to Israel for the construction of the tabernacle and of everything associated with it, He declared that the tabernacle would be His dwelling place in the midst of His people. The place in which He would meet with them. The whole system of worship that revolved around that tabernacle was about a way of access for God's people to draw near to God Himself. The sacrifices in the tabernacle worship spoke of the terrible and constant barrier that man's sin created to prevent that access and of God's own provision of blood sacrifice to allow, to enable that access, to cover man's sin. The priests served as God-appointed mediators of the people's access to God. They stood between God and men. But all of those were just pictures of the real thing. In the New Jerusalem, the temple to which all redeemed men will come to praise and worship God will be God Himself. The only priest, the only sacrifice, the only holy of holies, the only way of access to the presence of God that you will find in that place will be the one who is in full view with nothing standing between you and Him. And the name of that way of access is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect temple. Throughout Scripture, light represents the real truth about God and about all that God has created. His revelation of Himself. The truth which is the revelation of His character and His works. It reveals those things to us. That truth is known to men only because of the light of God. Because of His revelation. In the New Jerusalem, the light that illumines the path of every man that makes God visible and reveals every good thing that proceeds from His marvelous character, that light will be only the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
And the name of that light will be Jesus. Throughout Scripture, water represents the real life that comes only from God. In the New Jerusalem, the water that sustains all life will flow directly from the throne of God and from the Lamb. If you follow the the tree of life back to its roots, you'll see that those roots are nourished by a river of living water. And if you trace that river back to its source, you'll find the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the perfect water. As Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of that water will never thirst again. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. So it makes perfect sense that in that glorious place that Jesus is going, that He went to prepare for His disciples and for all of His children, there will be no indirect sources of any of those things. The Lamb of God Himself will be the embodiment, the source, and there won't be any confusion about that. You see, the point of the place and of everything about the place will be the presence of the person. In God's creation made new, every provision, every good thing, all that sustains life, all that constitutes blessing will be so inextricably tied to the person from whom they come that we will not be able to speak or think about one of them without speaking and thinking about the other. That's how it was always supposed to be. The enjoyment of creation and the enjoyment of God were never meant to be separate pursuits. Adam's and Eve's denial of that very fundamental reality was at the root of the sin that brought on this whole present mess. The notion that we can somehow enjoy the good things in God's creation outside the context of trust-driven, love-driven relationship with God Himself is one of the greatest lies in the history of the cosmos. Perhaps the only lie that is more foundational than that one is that we can know anything at all apart from God. There will be absolutely no confusion about the purpose of created things in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. There will be other things in the new heavens, the new earth, uh, in the new Jerusalem, but the ones that we just talked about are the ones that are front and center. I could read you the detailed descriptions of that physical city from Isaiah 60 and 61 and Revelation 21 and 22 and other passages. We could talk about the walls and the gates and the streets and the pillars. But I'm not going to do that because as my dear brother Bob Deffenbaugh has pointed out to us before, all those things will be of relatively minor importance to us very soon after we have stepped into that city. Think of it this way. When all the streets are paved with gold in a city that covers more than 2 million square miles of the earth, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, Gold itself will be as common as concrete and asphalt are now. And that's just the ground floor of a city that somehow will also extend 1,500 miles up. It will be a beautiful, marvelous, glorious place unlike anything mortal eyes have ever beheld. But every single facet of its beauty will be there to draw our attention to a person. What will make that place holy is the same thing that made that little piece of dry ground on top of Mount Sinai holy when God revealed Himself to Moses in the form of the burning bush and said to him, Moses, put off the shoes from upon your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What will make that place holy is the presence of God. When we ask the question, what will be in our eternal home? The answer that overwhelms every other answer is He will be there. 
The point of the place is very simple. There's a Hebrew word for it, and that word is Emmanuel. God with us. I'm going to show you a, a series of passages, and I'm going to move through these pretty quickly from the Old Testament to drive home the, the recurrence, the power of this theme as it, as it is woven through Scripture. And I'm going to show you, uh, these slides are color-coded just to show that there are four components that we talked about in the first message. Four design elements of God's original intention for creation. Place, image and agency, and relationship. Since we're going to talk about image and agency starting next time, I'm not going to read the part in these slides in green. I'm going to do one pass through the yellow and one pass through the blue so you can make some connections. So bear with me and just try to follow, try to watch the recurrence of these themes. Jeremiah 24, verses six, uh, verse 6. I will, God says, for I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them again to this land and I will build them up and not overthrow them and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17, Therefore thus say, Thus says the Lord, I shall gather you from all the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered and I shall give you the land of Israel. Verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. A little bit later in verse 28, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Ezekiel 37 verse 21, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side. I will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. A little later in the same chapter, verse 25, they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it. And their sons and their sons' sons will live there forever. I will place them and multiply them. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 7, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am going to save My people from the land of the east and from the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. You see the, you see the continuity in those passages. That's woven all through the prophets. Now, let's go back a second time. And I'm going to eliminate all the colors except the blue. And that's the one that focuses on relationship. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. I am Yahweh and they will be My people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 11, verse 20. Then they will be My people and I shall be their God. Ezekiel 36, verse 28. So you will be My people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 37, verse 22. One king will be king for all of them. In verse 23, they will be My people and I will be their God. Later in Ezekiel 37, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set My sanctuary in their midst. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be My people. Zechariah 8, verse 3, thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. In verse 8, they will be My people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And one more passage. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among them. The point of the place is God with us. The Westminster Confession got it right. 
said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God made us His people. He made us His inheritance so that we would know Him and enjoy Him and love Him and serve Him from hearts that are filled with that love of Him. In John 17.3, Jesus, in that marvelous high priestly prayer that was mentioned in the worship this morning, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they, that they may know You, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Isaiah 11 verse 9 says of the coming kingdom of Messiah, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. There's another replacement for the sea, the knowledge of God. Messiah, Jesus, will dwell among us. We will see Him as He truly is. We will see Him face to face. He will be our God and we will be His people. He Himself will live among us. The point, the place, is God with us. And that means not just God with me. Not just God with Reuben. Not just God with Rebecca. God with us. The corporate community focus of these precious and magnificent promises is undeniable. It is indispensable. And this is really important. God did not prepare this wonderful place that He keeps talking about just for you. He prepared it for us to be with Him together. Now please don't get me wrong here. It's perfectly fine for you as a child of God to say as King David said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's perfectly fine for you to say with King David what was in the song we just sang. He said to the Lord, You, God, are my portion and my cup, my inheritance and my heritage is beautiful to me. It's perfectly fine to sing, I have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. But it is so very important that we understand what God has to say about this relationship from His perspective. He never says, Debbie, you are my treasured possession. You are my inheritance. I picked the name Debbie because it covers about half the women in our church from my wife's generation. In Exodus chapter 4, God said to Moses on Pharaoh, God told Moses to say to Pharaoh on God's behalf, Israel is my son. My firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. And by the way, because Pharaoh didn't, he lost his firstborn. Deuteronomy 26, the Lord says to Israel, He says, I have declared you today to be my people, my treasured possession, a people consecrated to Yahweh your God. All of the passages that we just looked at, that long string of passages, declared that God is coming back to dwell among His people, not His person. Again, I want to be careful not to misrepresent God on this point. God does say that He takes up residence in individual believers. In John 14, the same chapter, in which Jesus told His disciples that He was going to prepare a place for them, a place they could not go, in the chapter 13, he says you can't go there yet. In that same chapter, chapter 14, he also told his disciples that when he left them, he was going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be there, to be their paraclete, to come alongside them. And he said that he, the Holy Spirit, would be in them. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If anyone loves Me, He will keep My Word and My Father will love Him. And we, I and My Father, will come to Him and make our abode with Him. You know what that word abode is? Mansion. The word we translate mansion. Tabernacle. 
dwelling place. I'll make, God says, Margaret, I will make you my abode. Mike, you are a walking, breathing, talking temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And that has huge ramifications for how you live. By the way, that amazing promise in John 14 is actually one of the most powerful declarations of the, of the Trinity in the Bible. Jesus says, I and my Father will come and take up residence in you. And then He says, the Holy Spirit is the one who will take up residence in you. The Father and the Son reside in every believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. They're all three there. In represented in the Holy Spirit. Now that promise was fulfilled for the disciples on the day of Pentecost and ever since. And it has been fulfilled in every believer since the day of Pentecost when we first came to believe the message of the Gospel when we first trusted in Jesus Christ. If you fit that description, the Spirit dwells inside of you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is marvelous. A couple of verses that I memorized when I was a baby Christian. It says, in Him, you also, in other words, Paul's saying, not just us disciples, but you too, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed that message, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. who was given as a pledge, a down payment, the first part of the rest of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of His glory. Robert opened this morning about how God does the things that glorify Himself, that result in praise to Him. And, and what's amazing about Ephesians chapter 1 is when you look at what He says is to the praise of His glory, and this is hard to fathom, it's all about us. It's about Him giving us adoption as sons, forgiving us, calling us, choosing us, giving us an inheritance. That's to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's amazing. That's by His design. Jesus said, by the way, Jesus said, and we pointed this out this morning in worship, Jesus said, you want to know the Father? Look at Me. If you, if you look at the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did, there you have the character of God in living color. Beloved, the presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer is personal. It's individual. It's also corporate in the church. But it is the down payment of our inheritance. It is not the fullness of our inheritance. We'll get the rest of our inheritance when God finishes laying hold of His inheritance. And what is His inheritance? The people that He has made His treasured possession. By the way, I believe that's one reason that God so often uses the place to represent the people when He's talking about what's coming. In Zechariah, God says twice that He's jealous for Zion, for Jerusalem. He says the day is coming again when He will comfort and show compassion to Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, who or what is explicitly declared to be made ready as a bride adorned for her husband? Jerusalem! Later in that same chapter, when the angel announces to John that he's about to show John the bride, the wife of the Lamb, what does he show John? Jerusalem! But in Revelation 21.3, God makes it clear that these references to the place are talking about the people in the place. We, His redeemed people, are the bride of Christ. It is to us that He is coming. It is with us that He will make His abode. 21.3, Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
He shall dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among, among them. So one reason I believe that God so often uses the place to refer to the people who will be in it is because it makes it impossible for us to personalize a corporate promise. Of, of course Jesus died for you and for me. Of course He saves us individually, one soul at a time. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior of your soul, and by the way, also of your body, you will not be saved. But the question is, saved for what? What did God decree before the foundations of the world that He was going to accomplish by sending His Son to the cross? It was to redeem a people for His own possession to the praise of His glory. The people, by the way, zealous for good deeds in Titus chapter 2. Not a person. You as an individual are not the bride of Christ. You as an individual are not God's inheritance and God's treasure. We are. Okay, so why did I spend almost ten minutes belaboring that point? Because it's very, very, very important. In this generation, more than any previous generation I know about, we're witnessing an increasingly popular movement that can be summarized by the phrase, I can do church without the church. Maybe even worse, I can be a Christian without other Christians. This is a grievous but altogether predictable outcome of the radical individualization of promises that God made to a people, not to a person. When you trusted Jesus Christ, you became part of His body, His household. And you might say, yeah, but the church is so messed up and it's so hypocritical that my relationship with Jesus Christ is better off without it. When you say that, if you say that, what you are doing is rejecting the bride for whom Jesus laid down His life. And I'd hate to see what's going to happen in your marriage because that is the template for your marriage. I can tell you without a doubt that when you say things like that, Jesus doesn't like it at all. Do you actually think that He didn't know how unlovable we were when He went to the cross. Just read Romans 5. It says we were sinners, we were enemies, we were helpless. We were opposed to God. Ephesians 2 says we were lost and dead. It's not very appealing. If our wretchedness didn't turn His redeeming love away from us, why would you think that you had reason to turn away? From us. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. First John 4.21, John the Apostle wrote, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And according to the verse just before that one, your love for other members of Christ's body is the proof of your love for Christ Himself. John said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And those passages aren't just talking about the brothers and sisters who look good to you. They're not just talking about those who like the same music that you like or talk the way you talk or dress the way you dress. They're not even just talking about brothers and sisters from your generation. They're talking about old Christians and young Christians and everything in between. Because that's Christ's bride. That's God's treasure. And that's your family. Right now and forever, that's your family. And that bond is thicker than blood.
We're already in this together, beloved. The one legitimate focus of our attention and affection now is the same as it will be then. Him together. See, those aren't, in His design, those aren't two relationships. We talk about vertical and horizontal. No. God's call to His people is to know Him and to love Him together. Read the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. It's one relationship. That's why in Psalm 16, and I'm really almost done, but in Psalm 16, that psalm that was the root of that song, and I've said this to you guys before, the first two verses, there's no contradiction between the first two verses. Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in Thee. I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord, I have no good besides Thee. And the very next verse, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There's no contradiction. Because it's one relationship by God's design. What do you get to take with you? What do we get to take with us from this unredeemed place when we step into that magnificently redeemed place in which Christ has made all things new? That relationship with Him together. We get to go together into His presence. That should tell us something about what we should be investing in while we're here, shouldn't it? As we saw in John 14, both the Father and the Son have already taken up residence in us in the person of the Spirit. That means that we are right now, today, walking, talking temples of God. That's true individually. But you know where that really, really gets powerful? When it's manifested in His church as we act as one. We'll take a harder look at the ramifications of all of this for how we live now when we take a deeper look next week at God's redemption of image and agency. In the meantime, I'll close by asking you to spend some time contemplating this. The point of our hope, the point of the place that's coming, and the point of every minute of time that we have left in this place is Emmanuel. God with us. Dear Father, burn this into our hearts, we pray. This is why You, why you called us out, why You made us Your people. Our Father, what an amazing, amazing thing it is to be the people of God. We exalt and praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and we look forward to being in His presence forever.